Please join us in giving special thanks to our patrons, story folk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selina Vokenhauer. You're listening to Lore and Legend, the Christmas specials. And welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. If you enjoy the episode today, please consider joining Paul, Sean, Shawnee, and Selena as patrons. This helps us to pay for the music, the audio effects, the art, and technology that we use to enhance our telling of these wonderful stories. If you go to our website at www lawandlegend.co.uk and click support us you can find out how you're listening to part one of the 2021 christmas special this episode is called the night and the cherry tree Now gather round you all and I'll tell you a tale of Camelot and that noble King Arthur and his Christmas court. Of course you've heard tell of the fine feasting, the tournaments and the games, the carols and the dances, the city and the castle, how they all look in fine array. Of all this I'm sure there is no further need to say. And you know of the customs that are kept at the court where noble and commoner are pledged to drink from the very same cup. Heard you tell too, I've no doubt at all, that each year King Arthur gives out gifts of such splendour that would put old King Midas to shame. For from out of the vault of King Arthur's tower a trove of treasure is brought forth, showing the wonders pledged to him from every corner of the world. Inside there is hidden not just hoards of silver and gold, but mystical weapons, secret treasures untold. They say that there is a sword with a bone-white hilt, which will burst forth into flame if you give the right word, and a magical hamper which can turn five loaves and two fish into surplus enough to feed five thousand. A fairy horn, which is never empty of whatever its drinker desires. And a magic bridle too, which will summon any horse. And a magic knife, which will cut up the food for any who sit at your table. And there is a cauldron, which they say, can tell a cowardly man from a brave one. And a whetstone, which can make that brave man's sword instantly fatal. And yet, more there is so, a coat which will only allow itself to be worn by a hero, and a magic chess set with a floating golden board, and silver pieces which are always moving of their own accord. Aye, 
but most prized of all by King Arthur, they say, is a magical cloak which can hide the wearer from all and every eye, though the full orb of the sun be still high in the sky. And besides all this, there is gold and silver and jewels in abundance, and shares of this tribute and plunder King Arthur does divest to his followers and bondsmen at this special time of Christmas. And the gifts are greatly anticipated, that much is true. But the most honoured custom in Camelot at Christmas, before all of that, are the rules of the Christmas Day feast, which go something like this. That not in the court may a single drop drink, nor taste a crumb of food, until a tale of great adventure and daring has been told, or at that very table a fantastic deed is performed. Now the time of the feast was approaching at speed, and King Arthur rose to chivy his knights to fulfil that occasion's great need. Who amongst you brings a story that's fit for the season? A tale made for the ears of kings and his kinsmen. A light ransom, surely, on a midwinter's night. Come, we wait with breath bated. Speak your peace that our appetites might be sated. But before any could think or speak to answer that call, the king's gaze was drawn by some sound and clamour at the far edge of the floor. And Arthur turned to Tilesian the bard of the court, and said, Who is that man there whom Sir Kay does upbraid by the door? And Talesian answered him smoothly, Sire, it is a loyal knight of yours who has fallen on hard times. He was always fair in his bearing and free with his purse, but like the famous Sir Clesias of old, he is but rarely seen now in the courts of the land, no more can he afford to travel in fine array, but in rough and ready rags he is forced to eke out his way. For this reason your steward, Sir Kay, judges him unfit for your presence. Well, on hearing this, King Arthur exclaimed, That will not do at all. Instruct Sir Kay at once to let him through. Give this knight meat and give him drink. And when the treasure trove is brought into the hall, we will settle on him some gift and remember him to all. And this was done, however much it might make Sir Kay scowl. But put in mind of such matters, King Arthur declared, that there was no better tale to hear at Christmas than that which was told of that same loyal old knight whose name was Sir Clegis. And so with the king's blessing, and at his behest, Talesian the bard rose from his place, and he began to tell this tale of the night and the cherry tree. Now listen closely, lord and ladies, to a worthy tale from before our time. 
for it happened a long time ago in the reign of our king's father, Uther Pendragon, that king of renown and great power. He had a loyal knight who was called Sir Clegius, and a braver man you could never have found, nay, not even sitting around our own round table. He was a man of high stature, of fine feature and martial might, and his manners were matchless in this whole wide world round. He was gentle, and he was fair, and he would share his own wealth before seeing any man fall into difficulty. He never relented from lifting up the despair, and none was truly able to fight or to feud with him, so disarming was his manner. His house and his hearth were always open to all, no matter their degree or condition. He lived at home with his wife Clarice in their baronial castle, and every winter Sir Clegius would hold a Christmas tide feast as rich and lavish as if he himself were the king. And he gathered in all, be they rich or be they poor, with many minstrels and travellers and carolers into the school. And none went home hungry or without some precious gift, freely given from Sir Clegius' open fist. Ten or twelve years these lavish feasts went on, and always Clegius and Clarice dedicated them to the honour of our Christ who on this day was born. But then the knight's coffers began to look bare, and to keep things running, his lands and his estates, alas, they all had to be sold. And then though he had but little left, and all his lands and goods he'd nearly lost, in God's name he resolved stubbornly still to hold his Christmas feast, for surely God, in his goodness, would redeem the receipt. But by next Christmas, Sir Clegius, he was quite bereft, and the bare castle where they lived was the sole one that he had left. Of former friends and retainers, there was no word or sign, and Sir Clegius, Dame Clarice, and their children too, found themselves quite alone this winter time. On Christmas Eve of that year, King Uther himself invited all his nobles to his castle to share his own Christmas feast. But having heard nothing of Sir Clegius or the famous feasts he held in his prime, he assumed that the knight had gone on some quest, or that had simply come now his time. And so no invitation was forthcoming to Sir Clegius to join the king on that holy day. Instead, Sir Clegius that Christmas was left to while away at home. The stones of his castle were quite cold and quite bare, entirely bereft of their former cheer and a single tear rolled down the old knight's face as he remembered the sounds that had once filled that place. The sweet song of the minstrels, the cry of the carolers, the joy of the dancers and the blasts of the trumpeters. But only his breath hung now on the frigid cold air, not at all like the warm song and laughter which had once spiced the air. And seeing him so mourning, his wife came to his side. She kissed him lovingly and said, My dear husband, I hate to see you cry. 
There is no sense in longing for the things that are past, but we should give thanks for all the good things that we do have. There is food enough for just us four, a tall roof for shelter that shall not fall, and we shall still sleep in our beds between these high shielding walls. So put off this melancholy and come to the table. Smile and make merry with your wife and your babies. While Sir Clegius knew that the words she said were wise, and pulling her to him, he hugged his wife tight, then resolved to wear a bearish smile upon his face and his cares and his worries to put them far away. So Clegius and his family ate their meal together, and then they played at games. And when all was finished, and his children and wife were ready for bed, he thought to himself, Now I shall pray, and thank God for the blessings he gives me on this and all days. And descending the stairs from their chamber he went, to stand in the yard below the dark towers and gates. And bending down upon his knee, there beneath the bark of a naked old tree, he said those prayers. Tentatively, at first, but then with increasing fervour and thirst for his God's glory. And as he spoke the words of the prayer, he heard something strange rising on the air, for the sweet sound of singing minstrels and carolers was quite clear, the joyful sound of trumpeters and pipers, and the cries and the tumult of drummers and dancers and the courtyard was filled with a warm and rich scent that spoke of glowing warm rooms and divine kingly scents. Sir Clegia's eyes fluttered open, but before he could look up, he felt a fudding blow upon his head. He was struck, and he leapt to his feet, and he caught up in his hand a fallen branch which at his feet did land. But this branch, it was unusual, it, it didn't look as it should. For this branch was not merely a finger of dead and frozen wood, but it glowed all over fresh with green leaf and shoot, and succulent cherries, all in red and ripe fruit. Dear God and the Trinity, the knight exclaimed, what manner of cherries are these, ripe in the deep rift of winter? By their like, all other fruits are shamed. And looking up, he was astonished to see that a wash in pink blossom was the crown of the tree, and with those succulent cherries, every thick branch was full, and the boughs bent down by the weight of that ripe fruit's pull. And then through the tree's canopy, the sun's rays washed the scene, and in that heavenly light the night swore, he heard the angelic host sing. Then Sir Clegius thought that he should taste the fruit, and put one berry into his mouth, and oh, the juice and the flesh of that cherry was sweet. It was tart, 
in truth, better than any cherry he fought ever before made by the Almighty's art. And with a cry of joy, Sir Clegius flourished the miraculous bow, and he ran to show his wife the miracle that he had found. Look here, he cried, at this marvellous thing. On the tree in our garden there are fresh cherries growing. Out of time, out of season, out of nature's good kenning. I'm half afraid to look on it again, or at God's meaning be guessing. Is this an omen, or is it his blessing? But his wife spoke at once, with joy and without doubt. It is a blessing, my dear, on that you may count. Fill a basket at once with these miracle cherries, and go at once to King Uta and offer them as a present. He will reward you, no doubt, for such a wondrous gift, and perhaps out of that we might see through the next year with some thrift. And Sir Clegius thanked the Lord that he had such a wise wife. My dear, he said, I believe you speak right. I will ready my horse and ride out at first light. Alas, when morning did come, he was sorely distressed, for Sir Clegia's last palfrey had died that night and left him bereft. Yet his wife filled the basket with the sparkling cherries still and called over their eldest son. Bear these for your father, and help him stay the route. It's a long path to Camelot when you're travelling by foot. And that fine Christmas day, father and son, set out with only rough travellers' weeds and staffs on their back. They entered the city, which was decked with festive green, and to the castle they came safely as its inhabitants made ready to feast. And Sir Clegius, accustomed to his former rites, approached the gate of the castle, thinking at once to be ushered inside. But Sir Clegius did not look at all like his former self. His appearance was beggarly, and his frame was ill-clad, and when he marched with confidence up to the gate, the porter looked down on him like he might do a a stray dog or poor waif. And he boomed at Sir Clegius this awful command. By God, vagrant, you go on your way, or I swear I'll clout you so hard you'll not remember your own name. But, good sir, replied Sir Clegius, I pray you, let me in. I am on honest business. I bring a gift for the king. Look, it is a wonder from he who made this world. Cherries, ripe in winter. Of such a thing have you ever heard? The porter came over to Clegius and his son, and he lifted the lid of the basket. Inside were the cherries, bright and lustrous indeed, though such a thing in deep winter was hard to believe. It must have been magic, a miracle, or something else wondrous strange, 
and it was sure to earn even a king's regard on a Christmas day. By Christ my Redeemer, the porter exclaimed. All right, you may come by this way, but only if you swear to grant me a third of that gift, which the king will reward you for bringing him this. Be it silver or gold or land, you must swear by the Lord our Creator that I'll have my share. Now these greedy words they hurt Sir Cleisha's sore, but he must play the porter's game if he wanted to pass by the door. So he assented, and the knavish porter gave them leave to enter. And Sir Cleisha's and his son passed through the gate, and made their way through the castle until another barred their way. This man was the usher, who with eyes like a hawk stooped over the portal to the king's great hall. But when Sir Cleisius stepped forward with his former knightly air, the usher croaked loudly, Stop right there! Come a step closer and you'll regret being born. I'll slap you down so hard I'll break your tailbone. Good sir, said Sir Cleges, for the love of God, hold. I have brought a present for the king to behold. See, this miraculous fruit which on a dying tree was grown. They are as red as the rose that blossoms in spring, though to every root and branch winter's snow and ice does still cling. The usher narrowed his eyes and sniffed through his beak, and he whisked the lid of the basket so at these fragrant fruits he might peek. And yes, it was real. Inside there, the cherries lay, truly the most beautiful thing that he'd set eyes on all day. By sweet Mary, he exclaimed, it is true, so you may pass. But hold on a moment, it's not so easy as that. For of the bounty you receive for this wonder, I demand two-fifths. To this you must agree, or you'll never see the king's gifts. That's the deal, take or leave it. What say you to this? Well, Sir Cleges and his son exchanged sorry glances, but could see no other way to escape the servant's clutches. And so with a sigh, Sir Cleges said, Aye. Now they were inside the hall, Sir Cleges and his son, and they had fair line of sight to the king on his throne. But no sooner did Cleges step forward than the knight's heart sunk in his chest, for there, moving in a swift line to intercept, was the royal steward who blocked the way to the king's chair. The steward, in his fine ermine, lifted his nose and pressed a hand to his chest, and he sneered at the tattered coats and shirts in which Cleges and his son were dressed. Who made you so bold, the steward did sneer, as to think you could hawk your pauper's wares in here. He gestured towards the basket which Cleges' son clutched near. Churls, he hissed, take your trinkets and shabby shawls and see yourself at once outside and away from this hall. Oh, good sir, Sir Cleges yet made bid, 
If you will bend your ear for a moment, I have a present for the king. A heavenly gift most worthy of him, coming as it did from the father of all things. And he gestured to his son, who held out his hands, and presented the basket to the steward so that he might understand. The steward reached over disdainfully and averted his eyes as he lifted the lid of the basket. But when he caught from the corner of his eye sight of the fruit which glistened inside, he pulled back and he exclaimed with surprise, Mother of Mary, I have never seen cherries like these at this time of year. I grant you there is something a king should see here, but you shall come no nearer to his majesty unless you grant me by almighty Christ a third part of the ransom that he rewards for this prize. Cleges saw that he had no other choice but to give the steward what he demanded. Whatever the king rewards me with, he said with a sigh, you shall have a third of it, no word of a lie. The bargain was struck and the steward went off without another word, but Sir Cleges now was quite bereft of the dream of helping his family, nothing was left. These three royal surflings had eaten it all up in three thirds. And yet, Sir Cleges still gingerly took the basket from the hands of his son, and approaching the king reverently, set it at the foot of his throne. Your grace and highness, Sir Cleges said, this Christmas day I have witnessed a most wondrous thing, which I can only think was done by God to honour you, my king. Descending this morning from the height of my tower, I saw a formerly barren tree spreading blossom through the bower, and though they be ever so untimely for the dark of this season, the boughs heaved with a glorious bounty of cherries like fruit out of Eden. See here yourself, my lord, lest you doubt my reason. And then Sir Cleges lifted the lid of his pannier, and from beneath the rim shone the cherries bright and clear. And the king stretched out his fingers to take one in his hand. He put it to his lips, and when he tasted it, oh, the juice and the flesh of those cherries was sweet, the tart flavour exploding on the tongue between his teeth. From the king's hand the bowl of cherries went forth to delight first the queen and then the fair ladies of the court, and the cherries were served throughout the hall, and all declared that of the food present their savour surpassed all. My good fellow, said the king, through this gift you have honoured this feast and done me great worship. And so help me, God, whatsoever thine heart desire, be it land, titles, or riches, whatever is in my power, I shall move earth to grant it. And Sir Cleges said, You do me great honour, noble king, but if there is one thing I might ask, then let it be this. Twelve hard blows on the backside, struck with your royal sceptre, and by your royal fist. At these words the king and his court were grieved sore. Good man, said the king, 
You could not pay me more. This is in no way a deserving gift. Please think again. For to look at you it would seem to be true that you are in much need of lands, titles, or riches, be they ever so few. But Sir Cleges shook his head and would not be dissuaded. Noble king, he said, my mind is unchanging. Twelve blows with thy staff is all that I desire by the sworn pledge that thou hast just made me this hour. Well, the king was disturbed and saddened by this, but he had given his word, and so he took his royal staff and bid Sir Cleges turn round and flourished the mitre above his head, ready to swing it from high down to the ground and strike the poor man's bared arse. But before the sceptre could be swung, Sir Cleges did cry out, Hold, my lord, but to take these blows from you now, I dare say, is not fair, because to your own royal porter I promised the first third share of whatever you, noble king, might reward me coming before you here. The king paused with the staff held aloft in his hand, and at Sir Cleges' words, he began to understand. Across his face flashed first surprise, and then anger, and then at all at once he did smile and break into laughter. But Sir Cleges was not finished, and he continued thus. Not only this, but the next four blows I find too are not mine buttocks to kiss, for I swore hard to the usher that our deal was this, of the bounty received for the wonder, I would give him the full two-fifths. And the whole court laughed as well as they realised the trick this good man had played because of the obstacles that were laid in his way, and demanded the king who revelled in the court's great mirth, Is there any man else to whom now reverts the manifold pleasures of this good sir's fortunate deserts? Oh, sire, it just now comes to me. Sir Cleges slapped his head. The last four blows must go to the royal steward instead, for on account of my lack of fine ermine furs, I was made to promise a fine that amounted to some third of the prize that your majesty thought my free gift should incur. Let it never be said, sire, that I am not a man of my word. And so the porter, the usher, and the steward were summoned, and before the high royal throne, their arses were uncovered. And with judicious strokes, they were dealt the prize that they had coveted. Ever so red in the face, they accepted their bounty. As the rod flayed their flesh, they cried tears of infamy. And then bleeding now with those tears of shame, they fled away to nurse their bruised buttocks and the ruins of their name. And to see these surflings over their own feet fall, the whole court brayed with laughter from wall to wall. The king turned once again to Sir Cleges and exclaimed, I can only apologise for the behaviour of those base and craven knaves. You are a witty fellow, so pray that I may better know you. Tell me your name. 
your highness, said the knight. I am he that they call Sir Clegius. Sir Clegius, King Uther exclaimed, do you speak true? He who was so courteous, so strong in fighting, of such great and generous spirit as no other in this land? Yea, my lord, Sir Clegius did say, I was that man, till God in heaven did visit me with sore poverty, that I might fulfil his plan. Well, the king wasted no time in setting things right, and clothed Sir Clegius and his son in robes that befit a knight. The castle of Cardiff and all its lands, he also granted there into Sir Clegius' hands. And he made Sir Clegius his new royal steward of all his royal lands, lakes and forests secluded. And a cup of gold he gave Clegius to bear to his wife, a token of mirth and praise for one proven so wise. And Uther made Sir Clegius' son, who stood by his side, a squire, and gave him a collar and a military belt, and lands which each year drew a hundred pounds rent. Sir Clegius was then famed of royal stewards the best, he was recognised and loved wherever he went. And when he had been King Uther's steward for many long years, King Arthur came to the throne and thanked him for his distinguished service here, as guard of the treasury and of the tower. And because Sir Clegius was advanced in age, he took back the royal keys and sent him on his way. From here to his home to live out the rest of his years with his family in joy and merry cheer. You've been listening to the Law and Legend Christmas Specials. This tale was called The Night and the Cherry Tree. Your storyteller today was Rick Scott. The theme tune was composed and performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music by Caleb Hennessy and Derek and Brendan Feister, and additional music and sound effects from the community at freesound.org. To find out about the folklore behind this tale, visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers. Story Folk, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket and Selena Vokenhauer. Thanks to all of them for their generosity and enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining our Story Folk and supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, visit our website and click Support Us. A Merry Christmas to all you beautiful story folk, and thank you for listening. Join us tomorrow to hear another tale from Camelot and the Christmas court of King Arthur.